Hello, listeners, and welcome to Shattering Superstructure, a podcast that breaks through the majority opinion and mainstream culture. I'm your host, Alex Arabian, a journalist who explores the value of art for the sake of art. In these interviews, in which I'll have occasional co-hosts, there will be no scoops, no juicy bits, and no hidden agendas, just a safe space in which one can think as one wishes and say what one thinks. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to Shattering Superstructure. I have a short but sweet episode for you today. As some of you may know, the social media embargo was lifted on Friday for Scream 6. Since I don't really have a social media except for an Instagram, I thought I'd share my initial reaction here and keep that pretty concise. So I thought it was great overall, very gory as any Scream movie, a lot of twists, a lot of turns, and I think Scream fans and just general fans of horror movies and film will enjoy it. So that's what I have to say about that. Uh, David Arquette mentioned in an Instagram post that uh, it was really scary. You know, it's interesting. You look back at Wes Craven's career, and I mean, it's fascinating how many sequels A Nightmare on Elm Street spawned, and then how Wes really took over the franchise, um, again, made it his own in Wes Craven's new nightmare. And it was just uh, brilliant how he was able to do that after so many sequels. The same thing is, has in terms of sequels alone happened with screen. And I don't know if uh, anyone could have ever predicted that some 25 years ago. For one, they were originally supposed to kill Dewey in the first one instead of the fifth, but Obviously, that changed when I think initial test audiences really liked the character. So there was that last minute addition of of him being rolled out in that stretcher. And here we are at number six. Uh, You know, it's going to surpass Nightmare on Elm Street, most likely, I think. You know, in in other news, uh, Oscar voting began on the 2nd. It'll be interesting to see who wins. I'm really rooting for Brendan Fraser and Kihui Kwan immensely. I, I think, well, not only do I love their comeback stories, but they were like, uh, you know, one of the staples of my childhood, you know, with Indiana Jones um, and the Temple of Doom and the Goonies and Brendan Fraser and uh, so many films that I enjoyed uh, Airheads, George of the Jungle, The Mummy, among so many others. <laughs> and I think everyone knew and knows and has always known that they were talented. You know, you, you put the right script in, in someone's hands and all of a sudden it's a perfect vehicle for them. You know, sometimes it can take an entire career for an actor to have a a script that they really deserve and is worthy of all their talents and range. 
I think that is the case with um, Key and Brendan. I also wanted to talk about some of my favorite interviews. I really enjoyed my conversation with Danny Glover, uh, which pretty much spanned not only his entire career, but he went back to his, his childhood, um, taking road trips with his mom, using the Green Book, getting across the country. Uh, he spoke about uh, growing up in San Francisco and how he's basically remained um, in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood uh, since he was 13. So, I mean, he's a true San Francisco hero, but he also talked about a lot of important stuff that sort of has to do with um, one, of the, one of the underlying themes of, of this podcast. And he talked about, you know, how the, the U.S. government uh, has basically been responsible for so many genocides abroad. And I think it, it began with a, a question about how this country treats its veterans. Glover, you know, I think he's a, a pretty outspoken leftist. So he was really well-informed. And so is, so is Boots Riley. That's one of my other favorite interviews. Boots is, with Danny, I, sp- I spoke with for an hour and Boots I spoke with for about three hours almost and over the course of two interviews we just pretty much talked about his music career um this was during the sorry to bother you press junket but he was just so open to talk about anything you know we talked about the coup you know one of my favorite bands of all time boots riley is such a great writer uh, I think only natural that he'd evolve into a filmmaker and, you know, cross mediums and also write and produce his own soundtrack with St- Sorry to Bother You. And his latest film is premiering at uh, South by Southwest, and that's going to be super exciting. You know, both films take place in Oakland, which is amazing. Keep bringing more film to... Oakland and the Bay Area, I think it's a, a wonderful place and people are starting to realize it. It's becoming sort of a miniature, less fake Hollywood, if you were to describe it in uh, a concise way. And what I mean is that each film festival, each let's see, Q&A or special screening that happens here, there doesn't seem to be that that buffer um, and the combination of nosy press, over-enthusiastic fans, overzealous air of tabloidism and phoniness and false sense of, of worship of a of an idol it's a lot more genuine in that sense and you can go up and just talk to some of the actors and directors and writers and producers that go to these things and just have normal conversations with them it's really refreshing in that sense 
what I found. And in terms of a, uh, from a film perspective, San Francisco has always been known to be a beautiful place, but so is Oakland. And it's so important that they're bringing films there, like Peter Nix, head of uh, nonfiction film for Proximity Media, um, Savo Hanian and Brian Kugler and Cincy Kugler's uh, company. And, you know, he's based out of Oakland, interviewed him before, and it, he's great. He produces a nonfiction film about, you know, the school system, the public health system, and what, what, what the police force could, could do better, obviously, because there's a, a immense amount of shortcomings there, um, especially in Oakland, um, as there are anywhere. So, uh, yeah, his films have, have really made an impact. And his latest film, I believe, is the Steph Curry documentary. So that should be really exciting. There's been a preview that, that's come out, but the official date, I don't think, has been announced my other favorite interview was Willem Dafoe. Uh, he came off as a really down-to-earth person. Uh, and I don't know if it's rare for someone who's starred in so many important films over the past four decades, but he was kind and was willing to answer any question thrown at him with ease and with generosity. So I, I immensely respect him for that on top of his talents and just seeming like a really cool dude. <laughs> so during the interview, uh, I think I mentioned that Klaus from the life aquatic, uh, was my favorite character of his. And he mentioned, he sort of agreed with me and said that that was his favorite character to play. And that was a nice moment. He said Lars von Trier is just a really sweet guy. You know, um, I think von Trier loves to play with uh, sort of his public image in the press. And he sort of gets a kick out of that. Uh, von Trier seems like the, the, the anti-celebrity type. But he said he was just such a sweet guy. Um, and, you know, obviously they've collaborated uh several times on films, um, most notably Antichrist. So that was one of the, the highlights of, of, of that interview as, as well as him talking about the importance of repeat collaborators. Um, you know, he's, he's worked with Martin Scorsese several times, as I mentioned, Von Trier multiple times. And he, he, seems to be sort of the go-to guy for for a director's core lineup, an auteur's core lineup, if you want to put it that way. Wes Anderson is another director who just loves to, loves to use him. And who can blame them? He's elastic in his range. It was sort of funny. I suggested, you know, I, I have this dream of mine if I was ever like a like a festival programmer or a programmer for a local theater I would absolutely do a double bill <laughs> for uh, The Last Temptation of Christ and Antichrist and 
um, I asked him, you know, what, what do you think about that? And he was just like, I, I, don't, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't like the, the mixture of, of those ones about uh, sort of a, a fictionalized count of account of Christ and uh, the other subject matter doesn't immediately for me uh, tie into, to, you know, the one I did with Scorsese and uh, that was uh, sort of interesting to get his take because he, he further elaborated, like, he's like, I don't have the mind of a, someone who analyzes uh, or uh, thinks critically on the subject matter uh, of, of, the films that I'm in, because, you know, I think if you think too hard, sometimes it can really be a, a self-defeating purpose. So he, he doesn't often revisit it, his films uh, from a critical lens. And um, I don't blame him. He's like, I leave that up to, <laughs> to you guys. He was very um, open about, you know, what Wes Anderson is like. Probably my first, one of my first big breaks was Stanley Tucci. He was, he was awesome. I interviewed him for Final Portrait in Berlin. And another guy who just seems completely unchanged, unmoored by the entertainment industry and by fame. He's uh, just a regular family man who happens to act. This was back in 2017, and he spoke about cooking, about food, about how there isn't really indie film anymore as it was traditionally defined in the 80s and 90s during the American independent film movement. He was like, you know, back when Final Portrait um excuse me, Big Night came out, uh, you could make uh, a film on a budget less than $5 million easily, and it would have uh, access, theatrical access. And he's like, that That kind of studio has largely disappeared, and, and an independent film is considered at least, you know, $10 million. And also that uh, just the lack of, of, of studios that are able to find that sort of funding that a story like big night would have. Um, he talked about like the devolution of, of Fox searchlight and how that really isn't what it was. Um, back in the day, um, he, he doesn't really say anything bad about the, the company. It's just that it's changing with the times and so um, in some senses, there is a move, I guess, away from opportunity for young filmmakers because of this fading independent film movement that really flourished in the 90s. But um, and on, on the other hand, you see the overabundance of streaming platforms. And it seems like a new one pops up every week, but even the core ones, um, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Peacock, um, is becoming a, a major player. 
um, you have so many options to skip the theatrical release and make your independent films on streaming platforms where sometimes they get a um, longer life. I wouldn't say larger, but they definitely get a longer life um, than a traditional theatrical release would. And so I don't know how much the two cancel each other out. The dwindling presence of, of independent film and American cinema and the increase in streamers, which has allowed open new doors for, for young filmmakers, um, even novice young filmmakers, first time filmmakers, but two sides of the, 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 the same coin and the old adage, one door closes and the other opens is pretty clear in terms of, of, of opportunities for, for our new filmmakers in this industry. On top of streamers, you have um, sites like Coverfly and The Blacklist, who, uh, as well as God, thousands of, of film festivals and screenplay competitions. It's kind of, uh, some of them are uh, a money grab. Others are really valuable. And I'm talking about film festivals and, and screenplay competitions here. But if you find the right ones, you can really get um, great feedback. And there's been a lot of success stories on those those competitions and festivals but sites like coverfly and blacklist partner with major studios um, mid-sized studios all the time to find new talent doesn't make it easier for uh, one to mourn the loss of of independent film i think that was a shooting star shine bright for a very short amount of time um you know 15 years and and the eyes of, I guess, 120 years of cinema um, isn't that short of amount of, of chunk of, of cinematic history, but it's uh, evolving with the technology and the times. That's both something to celebrate and something to be cautious about. This was a tough one. You know, it came down to Christina Ricci or John C. Riley, I think, and. Christina Ricci was amazing because she was a, a big presence um, on films that I watched uh, in my childhood with my siblings. Um, so, you know, my sister and I, we used to, it was, it was so great. I think we, we, we both knew, but we would always whisper to each other, can I keep you? Um, and, <laughs> It probably sounded really creepy. I can't do an impression of uh, Casper's voice, but we always used to say that. Um, and obviously, we, we Adam's family and Adam's family values were huge parts of uh, growing up for all of my siblings. But the ice storm had a later effect on us, I think. We watched it and... It was just like, oh, this is such a gem. You know, speaking of the American independent film movement, uh, she talks about how I think that was the movie that that made her realize, like, wow, um, these are the type of films I could be doing. Um, and I think that really helped her 
inform her decision to take a different direction in her in her career um, in the mid to late 90s. So my siblings and I always used to say <laughs> back and forth to each other, um, Charlie, we, we'd call each other Charlie. And that was what I think Christine Ricci's family said to themselves um, as an inside joke, which we never understood because it's never, it doesn't need to be explained in the movie. It's just, you know, we found it funny that they all named themselves Charlie. So um, she talked about what it was like sort of growing up as a, as a child actor and how to successfully transition. And I think she basically just said, you always have to keep trying new things. And it's amazing to see her return uh, to the Adams Family universe, so to speak, and reunite with Tim Burton. She talked about both. Tim Burton is just uh, as nice as he is genius. As some of you may know, he's like my favorite director of all time. To see someone like Christina Ricci say that, you know, she had such a good experience on set for Sleepy Hollow that it really just was like picking up where they left off when they started shooting for Wednesday. And she said it felt like, you know, I was uh, 11 years old again. He felt like a kid in that universe. Obviously praised the mastery of, of Tim Burton. Uh, how could one not? I definitely enjoyed John C. Riley's conversation, mostly because he shared the story that I believe it was like People Magazine or something that said like, oh, supposedly he and Philip Seymour Hoffman would just, you know, in in the cop outfit that he wears in Magnolia, um, they would just go and drive around Los Angeles and like mess with people uh, saying that they were the police. And he would send, send these videos and record them. And Paul Thomas Anderson like recorded it. And he, and that became sort of the inspiration for this, this character. They were just kind of making like funny videos before like YouTube was a thing. Um, who would have thought? And so that, that was just so great. And obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman was a regular collaborator of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's. And I think, uh, John C. Riley just plays an exaggerated version of that, that character, um, and, and their little videos that they would make. Another great interview was, uh, let's see, Paul Schrader. He, as soon as I, I walked into the, the conference room, you know, it's just us two and he's, uh, I guess on an extended break, or maybe that was just how he was casual about the, the, the whole press junket for first reformed. He's got a, I think it was a croissant and he's got a cup black coffee and he's, he's dipping it in the coffee and just going to town. And he's kind of just waiting for my, my, my first question. And we exchanged niceties, all that stuff. How you doing? How's your, how's your experience at the festival so far? And he, you know, he was a little 
blase about that but as soon as you, you asked him a question about film he was he just opened up and he talked about just the the 70s and 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 the great american films to come out of that sort of second golden age of hollywood and he was like it was a really fortuitous time it, it, it wasn't like what it is today you can't just go on a, a studio a lot and and pitch something um and so you know he was he was like he, he, we had just come out of film school and we we it was the right place at the right time um and obviously he wrote taxi driver and raging bull and um several other you know of some of the greatest films of all time and his, his collaborations with Martin Scorsese are uh, legendary to say the least. Press days are so long. So I'd be eating during interviews as well. I'd probably not even be open to talking about like movies or <laughs> my career. Um, probably wouldn't even take press. I'd be like uh, the J.D. Salinger of filmmakers if, um, <laughs> if I was a filmmaker. I'm super grateful uh, to have been able to make a a small dent in the journalism community, um, but I, I have to say my 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 crowning achievement was an article for the San Francisco Chronicle where I interviewed um, four Armenians and Terry George. And it was the day before President Biden recognized the Armenian genocide um, in 2021 on April 24th. That's Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day. And I interviewed, um, well, I, I, I interviewed Eric Israelian, who's the producer of The Promise, Terry George, who uh, is the director of The Promise. That's the first movie to ever be released in America. Are produced in America that ha- that depicts the Armenian genocide, and that has to do with um, the history of censorship and um, against Armenians um, being portrayed in film, especially the genocide um, in America and in so many other countries by Turkish intimidation. Uh, I spoke with you know the hurdles it was for them to get it made, and every production company said you know. All you need to do is come in here and mention the words Armenian genocide. They're not even going to, no one's going to read the script. And that was a, a friend of Eric's. And so essentially how they they made the film was with Kirk Kerkorian's uh, money. And he, he was the former CEO of MGM. And it, it was in all of its casinos in, in Las Vegas. So he ran both divisions and, and um, this was one of his last wishes was to get this made after a lifetime of seeing what happens when you deny genocide, not only um, as a country, um, but in art, because art is history. Um, so, and sometimes it can inform us and educate us of things that have been kept secret for nefarious reasons. I also interviewed Serge Tonkin, the, the front man of System of a Down, and, and he was just, uh, he was awesome. 
he, he talked about uh, steps that still need to be taken. Um, you know, we, we all talked about the sort of need to defund Turkey and Azerbaijan. We're funding the genocide of Armenians right now abroad, uh, which is a tough pill to swallow. I always uh, had conflicted feelings about living in this country. Uh, in one sense, it gave my my grandfather and my great grandparents an opportunity and you know uh, asylum uh, during the genocide when they escaped from the Armenian genocide. But and it really you know their experiences about the. Uh, the genocide and, and how important it is to leave a legacy and how important family is really drove them to work incredibly hard so that future generations wouldn't be allowed to experience the horrors that they experienced. Um, on the other hand, it's founded on genocide, the genocide of native Americans, the genocide of black people with slavery. Um, and now, you know, instead of just massacring people at home, we do it abroad for imperialistic reasons. And also because we want to democratize other people and who don't really have a mean us any, any harm. You know, I feel like sometimes that we're the bad guys. I mean, I know we are, um, if you look at our whole country's history and the funding of so many genocides abroad, propping up puppet dictators and creating false borders, um, assassinating the most important people, you know, of the last century, like JFK, Malcolm X, MLK, RFK. Where do you start and when does it end? But these are things that we've discussed um, or that we did discuss in, in the article with the San Francisco Chronicle. And so on top of Serge Tonkin, we had um, one of the uh, leaders of the Armenian National Committee of America, the ANCA, and they, um, they offered their sort of stance and everything was universal. As I mentioned, uh, we've been censored. Um, and the only sort of reason that the promise got funded is because Kirk Krikorian donated a hundred million of his own money to make the film because no actual production company would do it. So he provided all the capital. Um, and then Eric Israelian used the pro proceeds to create a char charity specifically for Armenia, Armenia and one charity that also uh, is for human rights um, violations for, for everyone um, abroad and at home. So every culture, uh, every race, every ethnicity uh, who's um, experiencing a crime against humanity. So those are two charities and he's also teaming up with Discovery to finally put um, the... Armenian genocide in history books so so Amer American kids can learn about it at a young age instead of um, it being denied and 
over 75% of the countries uh, of the world. Um, I think it's something like 83% of the countries of the world deny it still. So hopefully this can set an example, not just at home, but abroad as well. And so basically the history of censorship in film for our media is that um, I guess it would start with MGM, um, ironically, and this has nothing to do with Kirk Kerkorian because he wasn't, uh, he didn't become CEO until uh, about, God, almost 40 years later. So this was, I think, when MGM was trying to adapt, um, I think it's 40 Days of Musada, and uh, Mehmet Ertegan, who was the Turkish ambassador of the United States uh, back then, did everything in his power to stop it from happening. He, he contacted Secret- Secretary of State um, Hull. He contacted uh, William H. Hayes, obviously the founder of the Hayes Code. Um, so there was this battle back and forth between MGM internally um, as well as between them and Turkey over whether or not this film could get made. The Turks managed to intimidate the, the, the Nazis to prohibit the sale of Weifel's book. Um, so if they were gonna, able to intimidate the Nazis, uh, you know, they were confident enough to not see America as uh, an issue or a threat to, to silence them. And that's exactly what they did. This film never got made to appease Turkey because they're a huge security ally and a big trading partner for us. hundred years later, it's the same exact shit. <laughs> so um, they tried once again to adapt it and it was banned in 68. That was the year before uh, Kerkorian took over in 69. During Kerkorian's entire stay at MGM, um, there was, you know, no, uh, no issues with Turkey. And then, um, it was banned once again, the year after he left in 2006. And I think once more, so we're still waiting for, um, more stories to come from that. As you know, there are so many different experiences that people have had, and it, it would be fascinating to see more. And also delve into the generational trauma of it and how denial is fed into that. You know, a genocide denied is a genocide repeated. And also just normalizing stories about Armenians. Um, Often we're just depicted as drug dealers or the mentally ill or just a nameless character um, or a, you know, very stereotypical sort of Kardashian-esque uh, character, but we're not. We're, we're, we are a lot more varied than that. And we have a rich culture to share with the world. And I can't wait for film and television to embrace this a little bit more. Um, and that starts with, I think, addressing the elephant in the room whenever you hear the word Armenia or Armenian and that's the genocide and 
how difficult but not difficult it is to navigate the wording of it, how it's thought of, how we are thought of. You know, people are either on Turkey's side or America's side, and it's it's tough to see genocide denialists even um, at home. But I think people are realizing that now that it's recognized, it's time to confront the resurgence of the genocide that's happening abroad right now in Artsakh and Armenia proper. I'm looking forward to uh, future episodes. Uh, I think coming up soon, we have Don Lake, uh, who is an outstanding character actor and um, a good friend. So see you soon and thanks for listening.